difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Keith Phipps. Scott Tobias. A handsome yet drippy sea creature just walked off with our producer Genevieve, but we assume she'll be back in future episodes if we figure out where its hidden grotto is and go retrieve her. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're wading into the deep, dark waters of the id for a couple of strange romantic fantasies featuring fishmen. Keith, you want to hook us up with some info about this week's pairing? Only if you promise to reel in the fish puns. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's romantic fantasy, The Shape of Water, opened in theaters in December 2017. But like so many prestige films that first emerged around the holidays, it's had a long, slow release and a slow build with audiences. It's a bit of a hard sell as a movie a swooning nostalgic romance built around a mute woman and a grotesque amphibian monster. But it slowly captivated art house audience thanks to its beautiful cinematography, its strong performances, and its obsession with classic musicals, which provide the kind of background that seduces cinephiles by confirming and underlining their love of old movies. Del Toro's obsession with the past and old classics comes up in another way in The Shape of Water. It was heavily inspired by the 1954 3D universal horror movie, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, featuring a very similar man-shaped amphibian monster that obsesses over a human woman and wants to carry her away, even as her partners on a scientific expedition are scheming to capture or kill the creature for study. Del Toro has said in numerous interviews that he was obsessed with the 1954 film and that he wanted the romance, quote-unquote, between the monster and the leading lady to work out. So here's his version of the story, which is surprisingly not that radically different from the original. On today's episode, we'll look at the 1954 horror classic The Creature from the Black Lagoon, consider its place in the Universal Monsters pantheon, break down some of the movies that inspired it, and consider some of the movies that inspired in turn. Then later in the week, we'll bring in The Shape of Water and see how Del Toro's usual obsession with ghosts, the past, and especially monsters play out in this peculiarly romantic yet bloody setting. Both of these movies are a little fishy about their emotional connections, but after this break, we'll take a deep dive into their symbolism, and I expect it will all go swimmingly. Tasha, I believe I made myself clear about the puns. Come on, I was just baiting you a little. Just don't don't confiscate my mic. (laughs) Science couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon. A throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. There are good reasons we don't tend to anthropomorphize fish. They're chilly, clammy animals with blank eyes, they have none of the endearing qualities that appeal to us in other animals, and they can't survive in the environment we take for granted. So what do we make of two different movies that romanticize a fish man? In the case of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, it might help to pull the influences apart a little. The legend has it that producer William Olland, who's a friend of Orson Welles and played a small role as a reporter in Citizen Kane, was at a party at Welles' house when cinematographer Gabriel Figueroa told him a story about an Amazonian legend about an amphibious man monster that emerged from the river once a year to steal a woman from a local village. 
The story stuck with Olland, who eventually wrote a film treatment for it, heavily inspired by the original 1933 King Kong. Once again, invaders from the modern world enter the jungle and come across evidence of a strange creature apparently left over from a long-ago era. The creature becomes obsessed with the beautiful woman among them, but the outsiders capture and contain it. Then it breaks free and wreaks havoc. Those story bones are familiar, but Ond was also inspired by The Lost World and by another film that he'd just produced, the science fiction feature It Came From Outer Space. That was Universal's first 3D picture, and it starred Richard Carlson and was directed by Jack Arnold, who was shifting into science fiction after starting his career with a couple of dramatic issue movies. It seemed natural for Olland to put Creature from the Black Lagoon into Arnold's hands, cast Carlson as the male lead again, and make another 3D movie. They were following a template that had worked for them one year earlier in an era increasingly obsessed with science fiction and pulp fantasies. But Creature from the Black Lagoon also feels like it's tapping into an earlier universal tradition of dangerous but misunderstood and, frankly, kind of appealing monsters. The great universal monster movie tradition started in the 1920s with Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame and many of the best-known classics, including Dracula, The Mummy, Frankenstein, and The Invisible Man, all dated back to the 1930s. All of these movies centered on villains that were tormented by their monstrousness, or were a little sexy as well as scary, or both. But the monster tradition faded. By the time Creature came along in 1954, Universal was lampooning its own horror tradition by turning it into comedy, with Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and a whole lot more. The studio even hedged its bets on Creature from the Black Lagoon by shooting a 1953 TV sketch where Abbott and Costello run into the creature itself. Apparently, Universal didn't need all this padding, though. Creature from the Black Lagoon opened to widespread praise and huge box office for the 3D underwater photography in particular. The film stars Carlson and Western mainstay Julie Adams as a pair of scientists who journey to the Amazon to investigate a mysterious fossil that looks like a human hand, albeit with claws and webs. They're joined by their fame-hungry patron, played by Richard Denning, as well as a rough-and-tumble boat captain, played by Nestor Paiva, and several others, as they travel along the Amazon seeking clues about the fossil. Instead, they run into a living specimen, a gilled humanoid figure, played in long underwater sequences by stuntman Rico Browning. It's the underwater scenes that really make Creature extraordinary. There's a surprising amount of nuance to the script, as Denning and Carlson's characters fight over whether they should kill the creature or study it. Meanwhile, Arnold takes his time in establishing the creature's presence as it stalks the ship's crew from underwater, then fights them there when they repeatedly invade its home. This is a monster movie that doesn't stint on the monster footage, perhaps because the Gill Man costume is so detailed and lifelike that Arnold doesn't have to be coy about keeping it on camera. Or maybe it's because the stuntman's movements underwater are so different from the usual lurching, slow-motion, unbelievable monster chases on land. Creature was an immense box office hit that spawned two sequels, the second of which was still overtly inspired by King Kong, complete with a plotline where the Gill Man is captured and brought to civilization. But all three movies maintained the same feeling of sympathy with the monster and concern about it being exploited and hurt. That was probably part of what caught Guillermo del Toro's eye. There's a real feeling of pathos in the Gill Man, the creature from the Black Lagoon, in spite of its bulging froggy throat and its dead fish eyes. Is it a romantic lead, though? That's something we're going to have to get into with the group. Here it is, gentlemen. Exactly as I found it. It's amazing. It's incredible. Could it possibly belong to a Pleistocene man? Well, the chances are much greater that that hand belonged to an amphibian, Mark. One that spent a great deal of time in the water. Well, then how do you account for the structure of the fingers? Obviously for land use. 
What do you think, Dr. Matos? We can be sure of one thing. Whatever it was, it was very powerful. You say you have hopes of finding the rest of the fossil? As soon as I get a suitable expedition together. Well, why don't we make up the expedition? <laughs> We're here now, and after all, it does come under the heading of our work, doesn't it, David? Oh, it certainly does. More and more, we're learning the meaning and the value of marine research. Look, look over here. This lungfish, the bridge between fish and the land animal. How many thousands of ways nature tried to get life out of the sea and onto the land. This one failed. He hasn't changed in millions of years. But here, here we have a clue to an answer. Someday spaceships will be traveling from Earth to other planets. How are human beings going to survive on those planets? The atmosphere will be different. The pressures will be different. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. With that knowledge, perhaps we can teach men to adapt themselves to some new world of the future. Nice speech, David, but there's still a practical side to it. If I sound brash and more like a banker than a scientist, try to remember that it takes money to run an institute like ours. A find of any real importance can be of great financial value to us also. Certainly your board couldn't disapprove. It certainly couldn't. Dr. Maia, you've got yourself an expedition. Good. We'll leave for Manaus in the morning. From there, we'll take a boat upriver. So what do you guys think of Creature from the Black Lagoon? I really love it. Yeah. I, I love this movie. I mean, it is the quintessence of sort of 50s science fiction horror, but also... You know, as you were talking about, it ties back into the whole universal monster tradition. And, you know, just to keep things simple, the Gill Man's really cool looking. I mean, it's just a really great monster. Yeah, and I, and I think it's got it's got some heat to it. It's got some sensuality and kind of fire. You know, I mean, this is a very, they're caught in this lagoon. They're sort of trapped there and the emotions are, are high. I mean, not only are they being stalked by this monster or vice versa, I guess. That's going on, that horror element. But then you also have this fierce debate slash love triangle happening on the ship itself between these two men and Julia Adams, who's really gives a great performance herself as uh, as Kay. So, uh, so there's a lot going on. It just feels like everything is bigger. It captures that Amazonian quality. It's Herzogy in, in its way. <laughs> there's a moment early on where the um, captain of the ship, uh, Captain Lucas, talks about everything being bigger, talking about the size of all of these creatures and animals that they're going to face in the Amazon. And I think the film really gets that scale right, and it feels the stakes are very high. When you say Herzogi and also, I mean, I think you explicitly referring to Aguirre, the Rafa God, and Fitzcarraldo and his other uh, South American sh- uh, set movies, but also, uh, you know, in this film and in Shape of Water, we, we, you know, we had to think about Grizzly Bear and the whole line between humanity and nature that you're just not supposed to cross and how both those films feel about that. I think that's, uh, you know, good comparison, good good uh, reference points. Yeah, seriously, I had not thought about the Herzogian comparison, but you really do have a point. I mean, the, the point where they're stuck in the lagoon and there's this barrier and they just keep trying repeatedly to, to get by it at increasingly terrible danger and cost, like really does feel like that Herzogian feeling of we should never have come here, we don't belong here, and we're just going to batter our heads against this barrier until we die. In the legend of this lagoon 
itself is that people have gone but not come back. So you, you, it has that you know atmosphere hanging over it. Um, you know, I wish I had uh, Keith. I'm sure is, and you touch are probably way more schooled than I am about this particular era of science fiction. And this is my first Jack Arnold film. I've never mm. seen it. Came mm. from outer space. And a lot of the standards of science fiction for that era have eluded me, so I'm going to have to rely on your expertise for that. Well, there's a lot of films that look to this, and they're not always particularly good. There's, you can point to a lot of MST3K fodder films that are basically variations on Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, scientific exposition, some uh, drama within it, and, and a monster that they have to fight. But, uh, you but can you- also, I mean, you can see the DNA of the era in this. I mean, this was my first time watching Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I think in part I avoided it because there's so much bad horror slash science fiction from this era. And to me, like I associate the 50s so strongly with movies like Robot Monster. Yeah. And that's what I expected from Creature from the Black Lagoon was, you know, a guy in a rubber suit slowly walking around with his hands in front of him like the mummy. And you do get some of that here. Like there's just bits of this movie that are very standard for the era. And then by contrast, you have this sort of underwater ballet where the gill man is following Kay from below. I honestly find it hard to believe that they shot this in 1953, 1954. Because of the technical aspects of it? Because of the technical aspects of those long underwater shots because they're they're so accomplished. Well, here's the thing, though, is like it's really it does have so much in common with like your robot monster, your MST3K fodder. It's just everything is just a little bit better. And it's not like the underwater sequences either are like, you know, this isn't like Jean Cocteau we're watching here. This isn't this isn't like an art film by any stretch, but it is something. I mean, and I think maybe it's maybe it's the technical aspects of it. I mean, I don't want to take away too much of the artistry because there are moments of of breathtaking filmmaking artistry here, but it's not. It is is a very unpretentious film and it's kind of a square film as science fiction films of that era appear to be, I guess. I think what you're trying to say is that the the underwater footage isn't trying to do anything except to thrill you with the sight of a creature being underwater, necessarily. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Jack Arnold's the real deal. I I haven't seen all of his movies. I mean, he directed a lot of movies. I've probably seen every episode of The Brady Bunch he directed later (laughs) on in his career. But I mean, you have to go back to The Thing from Another World. It's kind of of ground zero, but uh, it came from outer space and Creature from the Black Lagoon are two hugely influential films establishing what 50s science fiction was. Tarantula's pretty creepy. It's got some kind of long dry aspects to it but mm-hmm. the uh like the monster action in tarantula like the the army versus giant tarantula stuff that goes on is really well directed and uh, surprisingly convincing for the time and, and the incredible shrinking man it's great i mean it's considered a classic yeah as, as it should be it's really eerie so yeah definitely a not a not a bad place to jump into this world and there there are i mean a couple of individual sequences in this movie that are pretty striking there are when decay going for a swim being the most obvious of them but uh, but many of the scenes of them underwater are all quite artfully done and and when you finally get a, a look at the grotto i mean that that is all beautifully mm-hmm. staged and um and, and striking as well so i don't want i don't i certainly don't want to talk about this film as if it's artless it's just not a high-minded piece of work yeah one of the things when you talk about it being unpretentious one of the things that really strikes me is how much of that underwater stuff just doesn't look 
calculated the way it would look today. I mean, we'll get into Shape of Water. Like, <laughs> I, I don't want to undersell Shape of Water. But the underwater footage in Shape of Water, like, every moment of it feels calculated to the nth degree for, like, poster imagery. Mm-hmm. And here you have the Gilman just, like, repeatedly swimming into, like, tall underwater grass and in the process tearing it up and, and ending up in just sort of a cloud of, de- like, detritus and underwater mud. And it feels like we had a stuntman swim into that and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like. You know, it feels like they didn't go back and, and try to get take after take of it looking perfect. They were like, this is what it looks like and this was what we have the money for. Yeah, it's not fussed over. And, and as a result, it looks a lot more real. Like, that's part of what makes the Gill Man so convincing is he swims around in the muck and if it's mucky, that's fine. I mean, it, it feels like an actual real environment because it kind of is one. And I think it also takes its science fiction elements Seriously, I mean, this is this film that starts at the beginning, <laughs> the literal beginning, to take you where the story is eventually going to go. So it is dealing with evolutionary concepts and this, and how could such a creature even exist? And, and the idea of really kind of this alien that is here on Earth and not something that we have to go to space to find. I mean, like it, it does that stuff straight. And you know, I think I, it's I, no, it's very serious about it. It's just it's terrible about the science. Like I know, <laughs> I know, movies never get scientific jobs right but i just i can imagine like modern archaeologists watching that opening scene where the archaeologist like <laughs> finds the gill man's like fossiled arm sticking out of the wall and basically just rips it off <laughs> it's like i'm, I'm like going that. to i want to stick this on a stick <laughs> i'm going to go back to the states and then we're going to come back, back and, and see if the, the rest of it's in here yeah. somewhere. <laughs> science for science. I know, right? I mean, we would not have, uh, you know, Sue, the famous uh, dinosaur skeleton in the Chicago History Museum today if archaeologists were like, here's a piece of bone sticking out of a wall. I'm just going to grab it with my hand and rip it right off. Consider the situation, though. He doesn't have a crew with him that can properly excavate the rest of the body, but he has this amazing thing that he's found. He's just gonna, he's just, uh, you know, pop the thing right out of the earth and then come back later. Yeah. That's how science works. I mean, I enjoy the uh, movies, not just of this era, but like on into the the 60s and 70s and even sometimes movies today have a tendency to see scientists as explainers who are there to give you a lecture to let you know what the themes of the movie are. And there's some of that here, especially in the speech about, you know, the past eras uh, where giant crocodiles roamed the earth. But like the little conference they have where they're all just sort of standing around looking at it and like talking about why it's an important scientific find. I I enjoyed that scene. Like Mm -hmm. unironically, it seemed like kind of a good way to explain why each of them were excited about what they're about to do, whether it's for the fame and glory or like for the chance to discover something. That's a great conflict too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you could see uh, Mark, I guess, David and Mark, they're hard to get. David is, we'll say the good guy. Mark (laughs) is not, Mark is not, Mark is kind of like a bad Indiana Jones, right? Mm. He's the swarthy adventurer who wants to, who wants to go in there and take credit for some great discovery and David is, David is. He's not swarthy though. He's, he's taller and blonde and I'm willing to bet blue eyed and I, I have to wonder if there's a little bit of you know, 50s, like Nazi imagery going on there, you know, because traditionally as like, you know, the the taller and more muscular and blonder of the two, he would be seen as the more heroic, the more handsome type. But the fact that he's so handsome, like his charisma is used against him in this film. He's presented as like this kind of like glad handing jerk. Come on, David, you can play house later. 
David, about Mark. Well, what about him? Try to understand. I've been trying. Somebody ought to tell him his ambition is showing. It won't do any good, I know. Long before you came to work with us, I tried. But there's this to say for him. He's produced some important findings. He's also taken credit for some important findings. Well, coming below? No, no, I'll wait up here. Hey, hey, what was it like down there? Like another world. I'd like to see it. The film also kind of reflects on approaches to nature, about coming to nature with a certain amount of humility and curiosity versus somebody like Mark who has his spear gun at the ready. And I think that's an interesting conflict. I mean, what's so interesting about this movie is like it's just better in every small little thing that it does than what you expect. I mean, and that's, I guess, all that stuff ends up adding up to... I guess, the classic that we consider it now. Speaking of classics, we should look at this a little kind of in conjunction with the Universal Monsters tradition. Until I looked at the timeline, I didn't realize quite how distanced this was. Like, it it joined the Pantheon. The Gilman is considered one of the great Universal Monsters, which is a relatively small group considering how many monster movies uh, Universal made. But he kind of has that thing in common that so many of them have. When you When you go back to the original film, of there's kind of a pathos, there's kind of a sadness, there's kind of a, a victimization of the monster going on here. Yeah, it, it works as part of that tradition too, but it's also kind of the end of that tradition in some ways. It's the last of the Universal Monsters to really kind of join the Pantheon. And in a few years from now, you'll, it'll really kind of get established thanks to fan magazines like Famous Monsters of Filmland when these movies get played you know, over and over and repeat on, on television and build a fandom around them. But there's several ways of Universal Horror. I mean, you get you know, the silent classics and you get the real monster movie classics that kick in in the early 30s with the Frankenstein and Dracula and it kind of dies off after a while and then in the early 40s you get the Wolfman and you got a bunch of team-up movies but that's kind of petered out as as you said before in the Adam Costello uh, movies after this and then, then you get th- this and it kind of feels like it's going to be the start of another one that just doesn't happen. And really, it inspires a lot of science fiction films that are less explicitly horror films than this one that don't really kind of work as sort of the the lumbering, pathos-inducing monster. And you get Hammer, which kind of revives the traditional monsters in, in new, like sort of gothic, really bloody, more contemporary-seeming ways. So, you know, this is kind of kind of it for Universal as far as that goes. Yeah, I think what's going on there in part is, I mean, even when it came from outer space, you're seeing that 1950s shift over to being obsessed with space and, and science fiction. Yeah, and, and after the atom bomb, like those sort of monsters feel a lot more distant. I think there's a reason why the Hammer films are all initially at least period pieces. Um, you know, I think I think a more post atomic age needed a different kind of monster. And not only that, but an international age. I mean, I think after the war, when Americans had been all over the globe, there was maybe a little less sense of anything outside our borders is darkest unknownia, and we might find anything out there. So movies concentrated less on that and more on the unknown of outer space. And then once Sputnik happened, it just became an obsession, like a national obsession and a national fear. And yeah. science fiction really took off in cinema. I think it's a lot easier to sell the idea of like, you know, pulp adventure set in, in unknown lands to a generation that hadn't been shipped, you know, to the South Pacific or Asia um, and had actually seen these places for themselves. Like, even this, it's like it's an 
undiscovered pocket within South America, like the unknown land within the known land, you know, even there, a little more explanation needed to get to like sort of this darkest unknownia or whatever. It is still funny to me, though, that like as we moved into the 50s and 60s in pulp, we still maintained that image. There's always the image of the monster, whatever it is, the, the robot monster, the alien monster, the gill monster, the mummy monster carrying a woman, sometimes unconscious, often in her in her like night clothes because she was spirited away in the middle of the night. But there's just always this image of whatever it is, Mars wants women, whatever the creature is, it's after our women. Where is the coming from guys King Kong? <laughs> I, don't know. I mean yeah i mean king kong there's there's something about that imagery that just works i think i'm like taps into like you know fear and eros at the same time maybe not for everyone but i i there's you can't argue with what works i i don't think you, there's a reason you see it over and over again i always thought it was i mean you know there's there's that sort of like death and eros as you say fixation where you cram the two things together and you get horror i mean it comes up over and over in horror movies this idea that sex equals death and i always thought that that was that was sort of more the base of it that and just kind of the the fear of the other like the other wants our women the other wants our virility the other is going to like take away our, our humanity and stuff like that but here I really start seeing the erotic side of it, especially when looking back on something like The Mummy, which I recently saw for the first time in conjunction with something else we were. You're, you're hitting them all. <laughs> yeah, we were going to do something. We were, we were going to do The Mummy and The Mummy. And then, <laughs> and then The Mummy came out. Then we, saw, then we saw the Tom Cruise, The Mummy. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's fair. It was because of the Tom Cruise, yeah. The Mummy. I saw the original. Mm. But Speaking of failed attempts to, to keep the universal horror <laughs> tradition going. Oh, I know, right? Uh, anyway. Yeah, anyway. that is pretty depressing. But the original Mummy is a is a pretty erotic movie in mm-hmm. its way. A lot of those early universal movies are. Yeah, that's a movie about a, obsession and longing and sort of a desire that transcends death itself. And, and, and uh this, I mean, I think, you know, you get these little things that are going to they're going to get teased out um, in the imaginations of the viewers, and and eventually in the shape of water. But but yeah, the the erotic element is definitely not there. And also, like we can we can complicate it, or we can also say you're the mind of a of a thirteen year old boy. <laughs> you get you get the image of both a monster and a half naked woman. They're, you're having two different impulses appealed to at the same time. Yeah. Although, one thing I really have to say about this movie. Like having seen that image a billion times, the gill man carrying off the the screaming woman, I was not expecting as much male skin in this movie as we got. And there are two pretty handsome men in this movie that for the most part are just wearing squim trunks. Yeah, I mean, Scott, Scott referred to it as heated. That's definitely that, too. There's a lot of a lot of flesh on display in this movie. Yeah, and it just it really made me wonder how, like, you know, 20-something women of the era would have... I could see them going back to this movie over and over, you know, because you're seeing something on screen in the same kind of, like, titillating female gaze kind of way that people would go to Magic Mike today. It's something that I'm not used to seeing in films of the era. Yeah, it's a, a lot of skin in this one. It's pretty good. The, Gil- uh, Gilman, the Gilman doesn't wear anything at all. Yeah. I don't know if you guys <laughs> noticed that. It's all, it's all Gil. It's all, it's all right there. <laughs> it's all Gil all the time. <laughs> hey, what, uh, one other thought that I had, too, in terms of the uh, erotic nature of this film is like, it doesn't help to a point that we don't entirely see this creature as an other, though, as, as it, at least in the sense that we can... S- see some softness some sympathy that we feel for this monster in a way that we wouldn't for jaws or so you know what i mean it, 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 yeah, i mean it's, it's human-like yeah i mean that, and, and that's we've the king invaded, kong too yeah thing we, too. we've invaded and we've and with king kong we've invaded its space we're the intruders here 
in some ways we might deserve what's coming to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that kind of helps a lot. And there's something just so basic and almost like Adam and Eveish about you know everybody being in this natural environment and nobody people not wearing a lot of clothes and uh, uh, there's a lagoon and it's just, there's a lot of sort of natural erotic elements that are present here that the film exploits without being too heavy-handed about it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's weird. It doesn't feel like especially the all of the male skin on display doesn't feel like deliberately exploitative, doesn't feel conscious. It's just sort of a like a natural thing. Like of course you're going to spend a lot of time swimming so you're not going to wear much. Like no nobody's necessarily thinking about it. I like how the discrepancy in terms of approaches to this as a scientific mission are tangled up with what is basically just a love triangle as well. And these two things, they get knotted up and it's hard to separate one from another. And I think that adds a lot of layers to the film um, that it wouldn't have otherwise. I think the film is interestingly pretty subtle about the degree to which there's a love triangle going on. Like Mark clearly is interested in Kay, but it's not like there's a scene where he says you should ditch him and come with me or mm-hmm. where he, he talks about, you know, we had a relationship and you threw me over for him. Like there's nothing like that. He eyes her and he makes occasional snarky comments and he just very, very clearly does not like David and more and more so as the film goes on. But it's all sort of subliminal, like so much of the like the sexual content of this film. It's kind of like unspoken and. It, it, it's brought out in sort of the proximity of their bodies to each other and just sort of in the looks they give each other, the the way they act. It's pretty subtle. I really like Julie Adams in this and that she also doesn't seem that conscious of her effect on people. You know, I think she's just she's engaged in this mission, I guess, like everyone else. She's a part of the argument. And I don't think there's a sense in her mind that she's being provocative or that she's being deliberately provocative in terms of the sexuality, I guess, of this film. Yeah. And I think that's because the film takes her seriously as a scientist. Yeah. It keeps coming back to her scientific opinions and her putting her oar in with the men about how she believes they should proceed, like what they should be learning. She's not there as a token. She's not there as the bait. She's not there as, you know, the woman that we need because we need a woman in the picture. She's taken seriously as uh, as a member of the crew. And I also found that very refreshing for something in this era. But she does go swimming. Uh, and I think that's something that's worth talking about because I think there's a part of it just her needing to assert herself at that moment because before she goes swimming the, the, the guys have gone down there with their aqua lungs so they've been in the water they've had that experience and, and so she in turn just goes for it I mean without any consultation at all she, she not only does she go jump in the water but she swims far from the boat and has a willingness to uh, you know put herself in a little bit of danger and maybe experience a bit of bit a little bit of freedom I guess from mm-hmm. from this boat full of uh, angry men. Well, she's very physically confident in the water. It clearly does not occur to her that it's dangerous to be far from the boat. And if there was a strange subhuman thing from another era in the water, it probably wouldn't be. But the captain freaks out about how far she's gotten from the boat. Just mm-hmm. like, oh my god, it's dangerous. We need to get all the men on deck. We 
need to take the boat out to her. And she looks back and he's like screaming at her and she's looking back at him with a look like, what the hell, dude? I'm yeah. like 20 feet away. Calm down. Of course, we know that there's, <laughs> there's this creature below her, but she doesn't know it. She can't hear that music. <laughs> <laughs> she can hear that same theme played over and over and over again. Yeah. yeah. I was not terribly fond of the music. Oh, it's, it's really striking, but they, they beat it into the ground. The Jaws yeah. theme. I mean, that, that shot of her swimming from below, that's the opening of Jaws, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, that's something I wanted to get into a little here is just kind of where you see the influences of this movie going, because there's the the scene with the camera coming up from her from below and she's silhouetted against kind of the silvery surface of the water. Jaws quotes that line, yeah. that image like hook, line and sinker. Sorry, that, <laughs> I, resist, I didn't mean it. The, <laughs> good job, Tasha. Yeah, I mean, I think this gets under the skin of, of, of a lot of kids who grew up watching i mean spielberg is one i, th- I think different uh type of monster but i mean there's there's kind of a american world for london kind of thing too where, where your sympathies are, are, are with the the monster and the victim at the same time that's not you you know unique to those films but if it seems like that would be another way this is film influenced others yeah i just kept coming back to psycho just because of the mm. scientists standing around having their like we're we're going to explain the psychology of like what it is to to be a monster or what it is to be a scientist kind of thing. Sure, I can see that. But yeah, Jaws above all just it, it seemed really blatant. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually just started laughing at, out loud when with that shot. I thought, good job, Steven Spielberg. That was a smart smart steal. Of all of the strange things, I recently saw a Day of the Triffids for the first time, and uh, I just was thinking about science fiction of the fifties and sixties, and it's it's striking the degree to which this is different from a, a kind of a bad science fiction movie in terms of how focused it is on the monster, not just like the monster's emotions, the monster's effect on people, the monster's physical presence. There's just so much more of it here. Like, how much do you guys sympathize with the monster over the people in this movie? Is I assume that that's deliberate. You didn't like Day of the Triffids? I didn't like the Triffidy part. Mm. <laughs> they weren't very, very good. I like how extreme it was and how it basically, you know, it, you can see every sort of zombie movie afterward. I mean, it's not a zombie movie, but, but like it's how it's really... It's kind of a zombie movie, though. I mean, it kind of is, but, but about how it, the real monsters are not the zombies, but the the humans turning on each other, you know, that's, that's right there in, at the very beginning. But anyway, we are digressing. I mean, I don't I mean, the, that's true here, too. Like, these, the real monsters are, are yeah, the humans. I mean, the characters here are a lot better realized than in a lot of similar movies, but it's still, I, I you know, I don't want I don't want the gill man to get killed. It's, he's a fascinating, sad-eyed creature who just wants to to be in his little lagoon and maybe steal women from time to time. And don't, don't, we, don't we owe him that much? <laughs> don't, don't we all just want to steal a few women from time to time? Uh, Do you see him as sad-eyed? I think that the eyes are the weakest part of that costume for me. Maybe I'm projecting backwards from Shape of Water. But, but no, I, I find... Yeah, the eyes are kind of eerie. They're 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 kind of needy looking. Hmm. I think you're projecting. <laughs> no, okay. It, it, it looks like a costume. But what I liked about the film is that you, yes, of course, you do sympathize with uh, Gilman, but his presence is still menacing as a you know, monster. I mean, you know, that's something the film works very hard to do. To it shows you, as you said in the keynote, a lot of this monster doesn't hide him because it's uh, unlike Jaws because this costume worked and Jaws was a pain in the butt. But like, <laughs> but you get you know shots of his hand emerging from the water a couple of times. I mean, he's really going after them in a pretty intense way from the beginning, from mm-hmm. the start of the, of the movie. So that presence is there, and I think the film. You know, it doesn't work on me now as a horror film, but I'm going to guess that in 1954, 
people probably found it pretty scary. But it's, it, you're still able to, to understand this creature with a, a little bit of nuance as well. And I think that's a hard balance to strike. Yeah, I think it's interesting the degree to which we're made to sympathize with him given his body count in this film. Because, I mean, <laughs> he, he's kind of introduced killing a couple of people who were not in any way involved. I mean, they I guess they came into his territory. Maybe the arm sticking out of the wall was like his like light sconce or something. It is weird. <laughs> that was his friend uh, friend who had his arm pulled out of that wall. From the Jurassic era? Like how long? Okay, so there are a lot of things we don't know. How long the Gilman has been around, why it cares about the fossil, which it seems to, whether there are more of them, how intelligent it is. The, the one thing that actually bothered me about this movie in terms of the scientists was that none of them ever say, wait, it built a trap to keep us here. It's intelligent. Like it, it keeps evincing like signs of actual like human level intelligence. Yeah. And that just never comes up at all. Like, what do, what do you think about the kind of the omissions of plot in this film? There's two ways to look at it. That's either sort of like um, a little bit of sloppiness for the writing or the subtext is basically, hey, look at these dumb humans who aren't even thinking long enough to think they might be dealing with an intelligent species. I just it kind of bothers me that nobody nobody is ever like, are there more of them? Are there a family of them down there? Should we be looking for more? That would be a more expensive movie, though, Tasha. <laughs> the creatures from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as near as I can tell, I haven't seen either of the sequels, but as near as I can tell in uh, both of them, it's the same creature. Like he, it just didn't die at the end. It's been a while. The third one looks so different. I, I think they had a much cheaper costume in the, in the third one. The, the second one, I think it is. I think you're right. I, I'm pretty sure it's the same creature, and then he's shot to death at the end of the second one. But then I think he comes back in the third one. I mostly remember that movie because occasionally in the 80s, the local stations would do these things where like, get 3D glasses at 7-Eleven and watch oh, this movie in yes. 3D. What, what, which one, what's the one I saw in that format? Go to 7-Eleven. It was like, it was a movie that you had, they would tell you when to put the glasses on. Yeah, yeah. And, and you had to change the tent on your TV. Yeah. Oh, wow. they, they did this with Revenge of the Creature and oh, that's my how gosh. I, I, I saw it. my dad taking us all to the 7-Eleven to get these glasses <laughs> was and we saw this horrible movie. I, can't I think it's probably something with an ape. I think the other one that got shown a lot was like something with an ape or something. But. We're dating ourselves so hard here. Yeah, well. I used to go down to the the corner drugstore to get me a 10 cent comic and a <laughs> yeah. cup full of fizzy whiz it's back when i was playing atari and on, on a black and white TV. well there are, there are four channels you know you, you, you looked for thrills where you could yeah. find them and then we'd all sit around the radio <laughs> 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 i just couldn't make us older and older for no reason uh, yeah. i mean you know, you know you just you couldn't get away from those lone ranger adventures <laughs> no. send in your uh your box tops for a lone ranger uh <laughs> Badge. Yep. I'm sorry your dad didn't come back for World War One, Tasha. And I think we should all have a warm cup of Ovaltine to respect his sacrifice and then possibly consider moving on from this conversation. We can actually move into a second movie, which takes place at roughly the same time we're gradually dating ourselves backwards into. But first, we're going to talk about feedback. So we'll be right back to get into some feedback on recent episodes. time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. 
appropriately considering how Creature from the Black Lagoon got its original start in Orson Welles' home, we have a voicemail here from Orson Welles, who called us with a thought about our recent episodes on David Wayne's Wet Hot American Summer and A Futile and Stupid Gesture. Those are a couple of films that I would not have thought Orson Welles had seen, but yeah, I've been wrong before. Let's hear that voicemail. Good evening, it's Picture Show. This is Orson Welles, and I have some thoughts on your most recent pairing of Wet Hot American Summer and A Futile and Stupid Gesture. First, I felt you struggling to make connections in the second half of the show. If only there were another biographical motion picture about a brilliant but troubled young entrepreneur and of the publishing empire who changed the course of American history. Anyway, I wanted to expand on something Genevieve said about Michael O'Donoghue being one of the most vivid characters of the film, and I wonder if it's because of this sense of humor more closely aligns with David Wayne's sensibilities out of anyone in the group. He's a good deal darker than Wayne, but he still has an absurdist streak at heart, and it's telling that two of his sketches are featured almost in full in the fierce film. Anyway, I greatly enjoy your radio program, and wish you a very pleasant day. I really don't think that we get enough recorded feedback yeah, from is... incredibly famous dead people. Yeah, so... this is why this is why this is why we ask for uh, voicemails from you all because sometimes we go Orson Welles. Orson, we just want to say that we really appreciate you giving Ed Wood that uh, that friendly advice and Ed Wood a few weeks back. Yeah, but uh, what do you what do you guys think of uh, what Orson actually has to say? Well, I would say point taken on the Citizen Kane thing. <laughs> That would have been something we could have talked about, though that would have meant not talking about What Hot American Summer, which uh, I, which would have upset me because I always like a, a chance to revisit that one. Would, would we find anything new to say about Citizen Kane? Of course we point? would. Would we? It's, a, it's like a, it's, it reveals new things to you every time. Okay. And, and we could talk about all the old things people have said about sure. it as well. <laughs> um, so that, that would have been nice. But I, Did I, you I, for know? some reason, I didn't, I didn't make that connection between uh, what he was doing in Feudal and Stupid Gesture and Citizen Kane. Did you know, <laughs> Scott, that it was inspired by the life of, some say, William Randolph Hearst? That's a fun fact, Keith, I, <laughs> I, that I did know. I did cut, know that deep one. Deep cut trivia there. That, that is. That is. <laughs> and and I, I would say that his legacy lives on today. But uh, what of his other point about uh, Michael O'Donohue? Yeah, I, I, I think it's kind of fair to say. I mean, I'm not an expert on Michael O'Donohue. I just, I kind of know the stuff that everybody else does but i wouldn't immediately think i, I can see the absurdity i wouldn't necessarily immediately make a wing connection just because i'm thinking about the vietnam baby book and it's just sort of way darker than anything i've seen that wayne would do on his own but no it's definitely worth worth exploring but it's a, the, some silliness some sense of the absurd with uh, sure. donahue yeah i think i think that's fair to say yeah so maybe there's there's something there I still haven't seen it, so I still can't speak to it. It's on Netflix. It's going to be there forever, for as long as Good. Netflix Good. I will wait forever to watch it. <laughs> so this next caller isn't quite as famous as Orson Welles or presumably quite as dead as Orson Welles, um, but he does have a, some feedback on our pairing of Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca and P.T. Anderson's Phantom Thread. Hey, guys. This is Bennett from Ohio. So last year when you guys compared Moonlight to In the Mood for Love, you talked about how both films use food and more specifically the act of feeding someone as a motif for intimacy. To me, Phantom Thread does something similar, but in a more mysterious and clever way. When Reynolds first meets Alma and is entranced by her, it's when she's serving him brunch as a waitress. Later, when Woodcock is showing signs of tiring of her, she tries to recreate that spark by making him dinner. What ensues is a fight about how to properly make asparagus, and Woodcock asks her, are you trying to kill me? I found this scene hilarious on first viewing, but in hindsight, this foreshadows Alma's actions in the second half of the film. She takes his petty overreaction to literally show him the difference between the act of cooking out of love versus the act of cooking, which can really lead to death. 
So through the course of the film, serving food acts as a catalyst of fascination, irritation, appreciation, manipulative control, and finally love. And I found the way the film blends these lines, particularly the ones that separate controlling someone and loving someone to be incredible. Are you guys familiar with the phenomenon where somebody says something about a movie and it actually makes you angry at yourself for not having seen it? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I certainly made the association between her feeding him in various positive and, de- and destructive ways. It did not occur to me that when she makes him that dinner, she's trying to recreate yep. their first experience. Yep. Well, recreate, but also, but I think gain a certain amount of leverage and show him something new. Too. I think she, she's well aware of how he likes his asparagus cook and she doesn't cook it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and certainly later on, you know, she's probably well aware that he doesn't, that people don't want to be poisoned by the food that they, that they <laughs> eat. And she does it anyway. And so she's leveraging uh, control through through food, which is, of course, how they first bonded. I, I, I do like this uh, voicemail a lot. I yeah. think that is a really important uh, point to make about the movie. Nicely done, Bennett from Ohio. Yeah, I just, it, there's a degree to which it, like, I just, I had, I'd put together a bunch of the pieces, but not all of the pieces. And, oh, I'm, I'm so mad at you, Bennett from Ohio, for seeing that, because it's, it just makes me like the movie more. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if the, like, the symbolism is, like, Feeding somebody as a way of nurturing them is such a big, obvious symbol, and the film plays with it in so many ways. And it's so the opposite of Rebecca with its, you know, eat your food like a good girl kind of nastiness. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just I really like all of the ways that this movie plays with different ways of feeding people and different ways of responding to being fed. But I, I do think it's really significant that they bond over that first feeding, but it's, it's all entirely in his control. Like she's an employee there. He tells her what to do. She does it to the letter of what she's told to do. He takes the, the order slip away from her and decides to keep it himself, even though that's like part of like her control, her tools in the environment. And then when she tries to turn it around and take control by cooking him a meal she wants to cook, he just completely rejects it. For the hungry boy. I love the layers in this movie. That's so good. Well, that wraps up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts, their recommendations, and their fish puns. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode, post it on Facebook for discussion, or call in a medium to see how it is that we're getting voicemails from the dead. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in The Shape of Water and consider how Guillermo del Toro's deep-seated love of monsters takes shape in this particular story, and how several tiny strands of plot in Creature from the Black Lagoon get fleshed out into significant storylines in del Toro's version. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, if you go swimming in murky lagoons, bring goggles so you can see what's swimming one foot below you in the water. We'll see you next time. Deve sentir muito parecido a esse amor This is it, underwater love It is so deep, so beautiful and liquid Esse amor com